You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Today's SpyCast is sponsored by two great companies. We welcome back Mac Weldon and thank them for their continued support. And welcome a new sponsor, Harry's. For quality craftsmanship, simple design, modern convenience, and most importantly, for guys who know they shouldn't have to overpay for a great shave. Thank you, Harry's, for joining the SpyCast family. We're joined by Rosa Brooks, who is a law professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, where she teaches courses on international law, national security, constitutional law, and other subjects. She also writes a weekly column for Foreign Policy and serves as a senior fellow at the New America Future of War program. Before this, she served as counselor to Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and during her time at the Defense Department, she also founded the Office for Rule of Law in International Humanitarian Policy and also led a major overhaul of the Defense Department's strategic communication and information operations efforts. From 2005 to 2009, Rosa was a weekly op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times and served as faculty director of the Georgetown University Law Center's Human Rights Institute, in 2006-2007, she served as special counsel to the president of the Open Society Institute in New York. And then from 01 to 06, she's an associate professor at the University of Virginia Law School, where she taught human rights law, constitutional law, and criminal law. She's also served as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of State, a consultant for Human Rights Watch, a fellow at the Carr Center at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, a board member of the Amnesty International USA, a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a lecturer at Yale Law School, a member of the Executive Council of the American Society of International Law, a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Fragile States, the board of the National Security Network, and the steering committee of the White Oak Foreign Policy Leaders Project. Her government NGO work has involved field research in Iraq, Afghanistan, Indonesia, Israel, Palestine, Kosovo, China, Russia, Ghana, Kenya, Uganda, South Africa, and Sierra Leone, among other places. Her book, Can Might Make Rights, The Rule of Law After Military Interventions, that she co-wrote with Jane Stromseth and David Whitman, was published in 2006 by Cambridge University. And her newest book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon, just out now. Thank you, Rosa, for taking the time to talk to us. Hi, Vince. I totally made all that stuff in my bio up. Well, it's, it's amazing that you're not a 90-year-old person at this point <laughs> no, for as much yeah. as you've done. It's probably uh, much more <laughs> tedious detail than anybody needs to know about me, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, we, we want people to know who they're listening to, uh, so we're, we're happy to have you. Uh, I, I said in your bio that you spent two years at the Pentagon, which had to be a bit of a culture shock after a career in law and academia. A whole other world <laughs> when you're going to the Pentagon. 
Definitely. I, I mean, academia is about the most unhierarchical place that you could imagine. Uh, everybody just yaps away contentedly. There's there's no sort of outer circle at the table. And going from that to this extremely hierarchical environment uh, uh, in which most people's ranks are literally written on their on their shirts uh, was definitely a culture shock. Well, you also have this situation where if you want to get something done in academia, you kind of just talk your way around and figure out who you should talk to. That's not how things work at the Pentagon. There's a very rigid way. It's it's That's right. But I was really lucky because I had a fantastic boss, Michelle Flournoy, who was the uh, undersecretary for policy at the time. Um, and she was just terrific at helping her staff navigate the mysteries of the bureaucracy. Um, but also, you know, I've had all these friends say to me, wow, you know, you, you really were trying to do human rights work at the Pentagon. You had done that previously at the State Department. It must be so hard to try to do human rights work at the Pentagon. And my response was always, actually, it was much, much easier than at the State Department or in academia because at the State Department, if you want to do anything, you have to convince 80 Senate-confirmed officials, none of whom think they report to any of the others, uh, to go along with it. In academia, you have to convince you know, 150 people, none of whom report to anybody, to go along with it. At the Pentagon, if you can convince a senior official, everybody else says, yes, ma'am, and they get in line. So it was actually a lot easier. And for those out there who haven't heard the name Michelle Flournoy, you might be hearing it again sometime very soon. She's certainly on the short list uh, for a future potential Hillary Clinton presidency uh, administration. She would be a pretty extraordinary Secretary of Defense. Uh, it would be really exciting to see her uh, as Secretary of Defense, and the first female Secretary of Defense would be would be fantastic and, and richly deserved in her case. Well, let's take a, a little bit of a, a broad look at your newest book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. If I'm getting this right, I, I read this as the broad premise of the book, is that the lines between war and peace, which used to be really clear back even as far as 50 years ago, are now incredibly murky. And essentially, they've almost disappeared. That's right. I, I mean, on some level, there was always a fantasy that they were clearer, right? Because always on the margins, you know, you've got guerrillas, you've got partisans, you've got proxy wars. There are always situations sort of on the margins that, that didn't quite fit in the, the two neat little boxes we've created in our, in our law and our policy, in our policy discourse, you know, war versus peace. Um, but I think it's probably fair to say that 80% of conflicts, 80% of the time, fit pretty well in that sort of traditional framework. Um, what's happened, I think, in the post-9-11 world, not, not caused by 9-11, but certainly symbolized and accelerated by the 9-11 attacks, is that we're now in a world where 80% of the conflicts, 80% of the time, don't fit neatly in that framework anymore, that there are these sort of messy conflicts, they involve transnational non-state actors. They involve uh, cyber attacks and propaganda and information warfare and political warfare rather than traditional, uh, uh, you know, tanks, tanks facing each other across the vast open plains. Well, even when that happens, I mean, a lot of people know this, but for those that don't, we haven't officially declared war on another country since 1941. I mean, no, it's it's certainly, what we have today is certainly a far cry from at least the, the sort of uh, 19th century fantasy of these, uh, you know, hierarchically organized state armies wearing their nice bright red uniforms with plumed hats uh, lining up on a carefully delineated battlefield uh, where the, we, know, we know where the front is, we know where behind the lines are, we know exactly who the who the combatants are because they're helpfully wearing uniforms. We know who the civilians are because they're off somewhere else. You know, we sure don't have that much anymore. Right. 
from what I read, it, it seems a big reason why, and maybe this is a chicken egg argument, so I have to kind of straighten that out, especially in the United States, that these lines have been blurred, is that so much money and resources go into defense, and, and basically a trillion dollars a year. It's not just the defense budget. We're looking at the VA budget, and you're looking at things that are associated with defense. I mean, no one looks at the nuclear weapons budget as part of the defense, because it's part of the Department of Energy, right? So a trillion dollars, and as more money goes to the DOD, less money goes to state and to USAID yeah. and to some of these nation-building, for lack of a yeah. better word, agencies that used to be doing these jobs beforehand. No, that's right, and it's we're very much trapped in a, in a vicious circle where... Um, the more broadly we define war, we throw in cyber, we throw in counterterrorism and so on. The more broadly we define war, the more tasks we think of as military tasks. The more broadly we define military tasks, the more we need to add resources and authorities to the defense budget and, and related budgets, as you very rightly point out. It's not just the DOD budget. Um, it's Homeland Security. It's Department of Energy, et cetera. It's the intelligence community. Uh, the more money we put there, the less money we have available for the civilian branches of government, uh, State Department, USAID, et cetera. Uh, the less money we have for them, the more their capabilities dwindle, uh, which makes people say, aha, the civilian side can't do these things. We better ask the military to do it, which in turn means that we have to put more money there, which in turn means that since we've now got all these things that are non-traditional tasks that now the military is doing, we say, well, if the military is doing them, they must be war, and the whole cycle repeats all over again. Yeah, another interesting part of the cycle is, is also the fact that the military, it's, it's their own fault to a degree, because they're so good at fighting old-fashioned blow-up tanks on the battlefield war that no one dares pick a fight with us in that way anymore. And so, you know, the military, how much is the military looking for a job? Does that make sense? I mean, no, it, it absolutely. And I, and I think that sometimes the debate gets into this, oh, it's so wrong, you know, from the civilian sector, you, you hear, you know, why is the military trying to encroach on our territory? And it, that's oversimplified because, um, you know, the world we live in, threats don't come neatly packaged as civilian or military threats. You know, how should you define cyber? It's not particularly obvious. You know, we've got these uh, new kinds of technologies that are really hard to categorize. Um, and the military, you're right. I mean, it's the old uh, comment by uh, General H.R. McMaster who said, people keep talking about how surprising it is that uh, our enemies are fighting us in asymmetric ways. Well, when you, when you consider the incredible conventional capabilities of the U.S. military, our enemies have basically two ways to fight us. There's asymmetrical and there's stupid. And they're not stupid. Um, so, so it's 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 sort of natural that the military is going to be trying to figure out how you respond to these things that are clearly threats, but that don't look like traditional conflicts, and sometimes doing it well, and sometimes doing it not so well. Sometimes trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, rolling tanks into cities or into hillsides in Afghanistan. I was I was a tanker in the army, so I perfectly understand the fact that. Those were not designed to be urban warfare platforms. I mean, well, and the th I mean, the, the challenge for the military as an institution, obviously, is that even even as it is taking on more and more of these sort of non-traditional tasks, like uh, you know, micro enterprise projects for Afghan women, or you know, uh, you know, training parliamentarians in Iraq, or something like that, um, and even if we've 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 come to a world in which already only about 85, only about 15% of military personnel are even in jobs that are classified formally as combat uh, military op occupational specialties. Um, 
and even many of those in combat specialties end up doing these non-traditional tests because that's what we need them to do and that's what we want them to do but we still recruit and we still train as if it's the 19th century and we're going to have these massed armies facing each other on the vast open plain which is to say that we still basically recruit uh, you know high school boys and you know and nothing wrong with high school right. boys i know many of them and i like many of them but if you were recruiting a group of cyber experts or a group of economic development experts, it's not obvious that that's who you would be recruiting. One of the reasons I was really excited to have you here is because you've really hunkered down on things of law of war, which is not something that a lot of people talk about, certainly a lot of people know about, but it's certainly something that's incredibly important. And, and some of these issues that you deal with in this book are, are issues that we have to have conversations about. And I think one of the biggest ones is now that we don't have this clear delineated line between war and peace, what rules do we follow? And I think 9-11 is a great example of this. The idea is, was it a crime? Is terrorism is a crime? Or is it an act of war? And kind of you show how different parameters can be used to define it in different ways. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. As I was doing research for the book, one of the things that I got kind of fascinated by was this foray into anthropology and looking at the ways that historically other societies have tried to draw sharp lines between war and peace and pretty much any human society that you look at uh, both from 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 modern day uh, industrialized and post-industrial societies all the way back to you know tiny little tribes 500 years ago or a thousand years ago uh, have tried to really make sure that there is a sharp line and, and different groups have different kinds of rituals, right? That you think of things like initiation rites for warriors and face paint and war drums and war sorcery, you know, and, and we carry it through today. I mean, you go off to basic training, your, your hair is shorn, uh, you wear a special uniform to differentiate you from a civilian. We still, we do exactly what uh, you know, thousands of so-called primitive groups have done throughout history. We name our weapons after beasts of prey and so on, as if as if there are totem animals, right? We predators and falcons and blackhawks and stuff like that. And and there's a reason that every society has tried to say there's war on this side of the line, there's peace on that side of the line, there are warriors on this side of the line, there's civilians on that side of the line, and we need to keep them separate. And, you know, to state what on some level is really obvious, but I think we, we kind of forget its, its modern consequences, it's because behavior that in peacetime we would consider morally and legally reprehensible uh, is acceptable and praiseworthy in wartime. You know, in peacetime, you walk out on the street in front of the spy museum here and, you, you know, you hit the next person who walks by over the head with a club. Uh, you know, the police are going to come arrest you for assault with a deadly weapon, attempted murder, maybe murder if you succeed in killing them. And we want them to do that. You know, if it's wartime and there you are in your, your tank, you know, and you shoot at, you, you know, you aim at the tank coming towards you across the battlefield, you might get a medal. Right? Because we want you to kill people. That's your goal, is to incapacitate the enemy. Um, and that translates in all kinds of complicated ways. I mean, basically, when you think of the, the law of war, you know, technically what we call the, the law of armed conflict, the rules uh, for wartime are really permissive in terms of the use of violence and coercion. They're really permissive of government secrecy. 
uh, of, of, of not having much democratic accountability. And we say, well, in wartime, these things happen. And we can't, you know, it's appropriate to have secrecy. It's appropriate to have violence, et cetera. In peacetime, we say, no, no, no. You know, the government needs to be transparent, needs to be democratically accountable. We need to have due process before we deprive somebody of life or liberty. So a huge amount hinges on whether we categorize a particular thing whether it's our efforts to counter cyber attacks or counter terrorism or anything else, a huge amount hinges on whether we decide to say uh, our efforts to counter cyber attacks fall in that basket we call war versus no, they fall into that basket that we call ordinary peacetime law. Right. Well, I mean, drones is a great example of this. The idea is that you're, you're basically differentiating an individual and saying that person needs to die. And in some cases, there are bad dudes overseas who are terrorists, but there have been U.S. citizens right. that have been killed. Anwar Awlaki, Samir Khan at the same time, right. two U.S. citizens that were killed without a trial, without due process. I'm not making an argument one way or the other because those are two people that deserve yeah. to go. But it does bring up these interesting questions about, Absolutely. you know, where are we as far as a society? No, that, that's right. I mean, when we again, when we think of war in a sort of traditional sense, and I think for most of us, our image of war is shaped by, you know, all these World War II movies and Saving Private Ryan and, you know, the beaches of Normandy and, you know, these mass movements of, of soldiers, sailors, et cetera, against massed enemies. Um, we, we say, quite rightly, you know, you can't have things like judicial review before somebody's, you know, if you're landing on the beach at Normandy, you don't have time to say, hey, your honor, um, I think that guy coming towards me is a German. Is it okay if I shoot? Is if I satisfy the standard of proof before I deprive that person of their life? Clearly, it would be crazy. It'd be unfeasible. We all get that. Um, on the other hand, you know, when we're talking about ordinary policing, say in the United States, even if we think someone is a mass murderer, a serial killer, the police don't just get to go out and find that person and shoot them while they're sleeping because we say, no, you know, you gotta, you gotta have, you know, an arrest warrant, you know, they might end up getting shot while you're trying to execute that warrant, but you don't get to just decide for yourself to go and kill them. And the, the, we now have technologies that enable us to have these very individualized targeting decisions, which is in most ways is obviously a really good thing, right? It's clearly better if we have weapons technologies available and intelligence technologies available that let us decide that let us target and kill one individual bad guy rather than say you know carpet bombing right. entire cities where you're wiping out thousands and thousands of people civilians most of them um, but once we get to that kind of individualized we're not we're not dropping bombs on the enemy you know the enemy troops but rather we're going after Samir Khan we're going after Anwar Alakwi. We're going after this one named individual. It does raise those questions of, wait, how come we're not having any kind of judicial process? You know, it's not the beaches at Normandy. These people have been, their activities have been known for weeks, months, in many cases, years. So is, do we still want to say this is in the war box? And if so, why? And you know, what do we lose? Well, I think there's an interesting misperception about drone warfare also in that it's, it's, uh, somewhat detached or, it, it, you know, it's uh, impersonal because you're not anywhere near, I mean, it's not like killing someone with a rifle or with a knife. You're thousands of miles away in Colorado or Nevada somewhere. But this opposite, really. I mean, these are people who have been tracked for months, if not years. These are people who you're, the, the pilots themselves have been have been uh, surveilling people for maybe hours by the time they finally pull the trigger. And an interesting point that I think you make and others have made it also is 
because there's not a lot of risk involved, because you're not risking a pilot or you're not risking a special forces team, commanders may decide to use this more casually than they would otherwise. Yeah, I mean, again, it's how you feel about this sort of depends whether you see the glass is half full or half empty. Um, but uh, if you know that you can use force in a foreign country, including a sovereign country, with total plausible deniability, no, you know, you can pretend it wasn't you. Um, you don't have to account for it to your own uh, public or to foreign officials because you can pretend it wasn't you. Um, and there's no risk to you, why not? Whereas if you face the question of, do we commit troops, this will become public, you have to think a lot harder about it before you act. I want to take a quick two-minute break to tell you guys about Mack Weldon. Like I've said before, I've never been a person who had paid a whole lot of attention to the basics when it comes to clothing. I'm a very simple guy. Unless I'm buying books, I don't like to put a whole lot of effort into shopping. And yes, I'm a nerd. Most of the time, I buy undershirts, socks, and underwear in large packages of about 10, and I'm usually annoyed if the whole thing costs more than $10, because, of course, I have less money to buy books. Again, the nerd thing. Well, I obviously didn't know what I was missing. It's clear to me that no matter what brands you've been buying in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. It will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you'll ever own. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And I'm still not kidding about simple shopping. From beginning to end, it took me less than five minutes on their website to order a variety of cool products. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. I don't need to tell most of you how crazy hot it's been this summer. And the silver line uses ecstatic antimicrobial technology, which has been proven by U.S. Special Forces, NASA, and Olympic athletes under the most extreme conditions. And of course... Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off using promo code SPYCAST. Well, and there's also this idea that you talk about in the book about imminent threat, about the idea that even if they don't look like they're doing all too much, that... Uh, we have to assume that there's something in the works. Uh, and you, you point out very rightly that we haven't been very good at evaluating risk and prediction. And since we always assume, since we don't know information, that something's coming, there's always planning something, what problems does this provide? I mean, what, what kind of, does it open a Pandora's box yeah, if everything is it, a potential threat? It does, and I think that's what's kind of scary to me about it, that that on any given decision, say, to... to use a uh, a drone to strike someone in a particular place you know you could say well here are the reasons and here's why we had to do it this way and um you know i think i think there's sort of two problems though you know as someone coming out of the defense department on the one hand i i have huge respect for the people making these decisions i don't i don't think they make them lightly i don't think that they are just sort of saying what the heck let's let's kill that guy who cares we don't care whether there's any evidence or not you know but on the other hand people people are fallible uh, and people can be corrupt and corrupted and we at the moment uh, for almost all of these strikes the us government doesn't even formally acknowledge our our involvement so we don't say who we targeted. We don't say why we targeted them. We don't even say that we targeted them. 
And when you got, you know, 4,000 or so dead bodies over six or seven years and you're, you're officially saying, you know, we don't know anything about that. We, you know, we can't answer any questions. That's a little scary when you think about democracy and you think about accountability. It's, it's scary, I think, both for us as citizens of a democracy because, you know, Anwar Al-Akwi, I'm, you know, I'm sure he was a very bad guy. I'm sure the world's better off without him. But what if some future government official decides to take out a dissenting journalist or something like that and never has to give any reasons or even acknowledge, you know, the, the, the potential for abuse is there. And I think we're already, what we're already seeing is in terms of the, the precedents we set for other states, you know, how do we feel when Vladimir Putin says it? How do we feel when China has a drone strike against a Taiwanese dissident and says, A, well, it wasn't us, and B, if it was us, well, they were our enemy, we had secret evidence, we can't tell you about it, just trust us, uh, you know, what's your problem with that? And they could say that because that's what we say. Well, I mean, we said the president, and I'm also uh, completely ignoring the sovereignty of, of states when we said we need to go kill somebody there, whether it's Pakistan or Yemen or other places, places that wouldn't necessarily, they have to look the other way because yeah. they're not going to pick a fight with us. But these aren't places that have given us the permission to fly over and, and kill Or somebody. in some cases, it's very, very murky yeah. as to whether they have or haven't. But, and, I, and I think that this does come back to that sort of fundamental problem that we have, which is we have a sort of a legal and political framework that's very binary, you know, that there's there's war with one set of laws and rules, and then there's peace, which has a totally different set of laws and rules. And the threats that we're facing increasingly don't fit into either category very well, but we don't have a sort of in-between category set of rules. You know, either it's we absolutely privilege security over rights and due process and transparency, or we absolutely privilege due process and transparency over security and and dealing with novel and imminent threats and you know I think ultimately we have to be we have to start talking about well what's in that space between it's a fantastic phrase from my my friend Nadia Shadlow coined it in a short article she did in in uh, the blog War on the Rock sort of said you know the space between war and peace is is this sort of churning busy space and that's where it's mostly happening these days but we don't have any framework when any given event we have to pick one we have to say war not war right. um and i think that the the hard unglamorous but sort of essential project if we do care about rule of law and so on at the same time as we care about our security is going to be to figure out you know, how do we simultaneously recognize that these, these threats are real? They're not, they're not completely inventions of paranoid national security minds. And yet at the same time, we have the space, if you will, to have greater due process and greater transparency with these kind of threats than we did with traditional conflicts. So let's figure out how we, how we develop a kind of in-between set of rules that appropriately balances rights and security. And this may be an unfair question, and I apologize if it is, but are you going to be met, this book, this argument, uh, with open minds? Are you banging your head against the wall? Are there, are there big thinkers out there that are willing to kind of take this in and understand these concepts? I mean, look, as a historian, I, I focus on the early Cold War period and World War II, and this sounds a whole lot like the arguments and conversations that were happening about nuclear weapons and how they dramatically changed the way war was fought. And there was a debate for a decade about, you know, whether it was from Bernard Brody at Rand or from the old generals that didn't understand it. I mean, do you have 
I imagine the generals right now, there's some big thinkers, and you know, whether it's Petraeus or McChrystal or, or it's you know, McMaster and others who are looking for, but there is that old guard. Yeah. There's always yeah. that old guard that still wants to roll the tanks out against the Russians on the battlefield. I'm not so much worried about the old guard in terms of personalities. You know, I, I think that there's actually a lot of openness and um, in the military and particularly in the, in the special operations community, there's a lot, of, a lot of very lively debate about exactly these kinds of issues. What I do worry about, um, and this sort of goes back to the issue of, you know, how do we recruit? How do we train? Uh, the way we've structured the military and the Defense Department on every level from, from training and education through the sort of personnel system, the way people rotate so quickly in and out of positions and the ways in which we decide who should be put in which kinds of positions, everything from that to the acquisitions and the congressional oversight structures are, are absolutely stacked against any kind of meaningful change. Um, so you've got a system where you can have lots and lots of individuals, including the most powerful people in the system, saying, we must change, we must change, and yet be sort of structurally incapable, or at least it's really, really hard to do it. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I was really lucky while researching the book to, to be able to meet with a lot of really, really smart, creative military thinkers and thinkers outside of the military, but in the sort of broader defense and national security communities who were incredibly encouraging and, and really want to be, you know, and are already part of these discussions. Um, but I, I recognize that the kind of the structural barriers to change right. are really enormous. Well, I, I, I hate to say this as an Army guy, but the Army is, I mean, this massive... So you, you, I think you describe it, and it's not the first time, but it's a great description as, as a either an aircraft carrier or something just ha- takes forever to turn and change yeah. direction. I mean, this is just uh, this massive behemoth of an organization. And it pains me even more to say the, the Marine Corps is really a lot of times the one that kind of embraces change. Well, they the Marine have Corps to. is small. Yeah. The Marine Corps has the luxury of being small, and it's a lot easier to change a small organization than a large organization. But but when you think about the way, even even at the very, very top um, of the military hierarchy, you know, at the, the level of service chiefs and the joint chiefs, nobody's in any position for more than a couple of right. years. Um, and by the time they sort of figure out what they want to do, they're out and they're and they're retired, whether they want to or not, because we have mandatory retirement, you know, with very, very, very rare exceptions. Right. And so it, it's a system that, in some ways, is kind of designed to uh, be stodgy. And that is, I think, changing that will take congressional leadership, which I would love to say, you know, is right around the corner. Best but, of luck. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the only institution substantially yes. more dysfunctional than any other you could think of would be Congress. I mean, this is, yeah, you're right. This isn't like when Clausewitz was the commander of the general staff for two decades or whatever, and he was making decisions on that. One of the things I found really interesting about the book, and, and again, I highly recommend reading it, uh, is... No, no, don't read it. Buy it. You don't have to read it. You should just go buy it. <laughs> I recommend the reading part, but the buying part is important as well. Um, it sends my kids to college. Yes. <laughs> uh, AFRICOM, I think, is a really interesting yeah. case study. Uh, this is a very new command, uh, and certainly compared to the others. Uh, and Africa itself was never really a priority until the late 1990s, I guess until the bombings, uh, the Al-Qaeda bombings uh, in uh, Tanzania and Kenya. Um but now with failed states popping up throughout Africa as havens for, for terrorists, you're really standing up this command as a, a real interesting case study for the militarization of foreign policy. Now, I'm using that term. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. 
But these are guys who are doing everything from putting on concerts to, to, you know, having their own radio shows. And this is, you know, what used to be Voice of America and, you know, used to be Radio Free Europe. And it's all being done with the military. Can you talk a little bit about what AFRICOM has kind of taken these ideas almost to the next level? Yeah, I mean, AFRICOM in some ways was a really creative and innovative idea, where as with so many innovative ideas, I think the execution has fallen behind the the vision um, pretty substantially. But but the idea was, yeah, we don't live in a world in which in which problems and threats or opportunities come packaged as military or civilian. Uh, and so we need to have some sort of structure that is able to both be be focused on prevention and deterrence and also on response that itself is not hobbled by these uh, sort of arbitrary dividing lines. And so the idea at AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, when it was stood up, was that you would you would have military and civilian leaders working just side by side uh, so that everything would be a collaborative effort. Um, and to some extent that happened, you know, but funding problems and the sheer the sheer fact that the size of the military just dwarfs the size of the civilian agencies has always made it pretty lopsided and military dominated. Um, but through AFRICOM, there have been all these programs, you know, ranging from cattle vaccination programs to borehole digging to counter piracy. Um, and, you know, they're really designed to try to take a holistic approach to thinking about security in the region. Some of them have been fantastic successes. Some of them have been embarrassing disasters. Um, but it, it, it certainly, you know, I, on the one hand, I, I, I think it's, it remains a praiseworthy effort despite, despite lots of substantial missteps in the execution. Um, and I think that we need to think about more experiments like that. Um, the, the, the challenge is to do them well. And, but the, the one thing I would say, going back to something you said earlier, going back to the question of can we reasonably expect any change, um, and it's a lot easier for the small Marine Corps to change or uh, Bismarck to make change. They're not dealing with the kind of sprawling, messy, dysfunctional democratic, democratic bureaucracies that we have. Um, the one thing that I think might actually spark change is that our adversaries who are not burdened with being democracies, you know, if, if, you're, if you're China, if you're Russia, if you're North Korea, if you're Iran, they're really good at operating in that space between. They're very creative in a lot of ways at exploiting the space between. And that's because they're authoritarian. They don't have right. to wait around to change structures the right way. And I think that you know, we don't want to be like them. We don't want to just say, well, too bad for the public and too bad for Congress. But at the same time, I think that, that it's possible that the sight of our adversaries just running rings around us, as, as Putin's Russia, for instance, has been, has been doing quite consistently in the last few years, would be the one thing that would really spark the U.S. Congress and, and the sort of national security establishment to say, yeah, we really do need to get serious, both on an institutional level and a sort of legal and political level in thinking about how to do this stuff better. A lot of what you were describing going to AFRICOM was really out of the Special Forces playbook. And I mean that capital S, capital F, you know, Green Berets playbook of winning hearts and minds. And, you know, and that it seems now the Army and the military is kind of embracing the, the Special Forces model created back in the 60s, the counterinsurgency model. Is, do you see that this new push as almost SF writ large or... You know, yes and no. I mean, I mean, I'm married to a special forces, recently retired special forces guy, um, and I have a huge amount of admiration for uh, for what Army special forces can do. I think 
you know, the old special forces adage was, you know, special forces are, you know, you don't, you don't just kind of turn them out on the assembly line, you know, that you, you have to grow them and it takes a long time precisely because the skill set needed, if you want to do that kind of stuff well, as opposed to do it badly, it's really easy to do it badly. Anybody can do it badly, but if you want to do it well, it's really, really hard and it takes years and it takes linguistic knowledge. It takes cultural knowledge. You know, it takes long painstaking efforts to build relationships and even special forces, which are supposed to do that well, frequently don't do it well. Uh, if you're trying to then take the conventional army, which again, you know, consists in very large part of very young men uh, and young women um, who may be wonderful, but that's not what they're trained to do. Uh, you know, we're putting people in a position where we're essentially mag multiplying the likelihood that they're going to do it badly, and it's not going to be their fault that they're doing it badly. Um, so, so I think that the right now the the army. Um, and the military overall are in a state of extreme ambivalence where on the one hand there's there's a, a an awareness that um, the United States needs an institution that can do that kind of stuff but some in the military say yeah we should do it so let's get better at it others say well we have to do it because nobody else is doing it but we don't want to get good at it because then nobody else will ever do it so let's stay kind of bad at it right. you know do it just well enough to be able to say we're doing which it. is a very but, military way of doing yeah, things it was, it's just um, so that that's not a great situation. I mean, I think basically there is a sort of fundamental decision um, that that our leadership needs to make, which is, are we going to get serious about rebuilding civilian structures? Um, and, and if the answer to that question is no, we can't, or we don't think there's the political will or the or the budgetary flexibility, then are we going to get serious about figuring out how we would need to change the military so the military can do those things well, which would also not be easy. But but we have to pick one because right now we're sort of in the worst of all possible worlds. Well, this is this is an in intelligence museum, so let me let me at least touch upon. I mean, all of this has to do with the intelligence world, but specifically talking about intelligence because there's really been a blurred line lately between the military and the intelligence community as well. And people like Mark Mazzetti and others have written about this, but. It, it, since 9-11, you've really seen things flipped on their head, where the CIA is doing more overt things, paramilitary or drones, and the military really kind of goes covert. And they, the DIA for a while, and they may have even stood this up since then, was talking about creating their own clandestine service, their own director of operations. Um, this seems like uh, mission creep is that, for lack of a better word, even more so than other things, because uh, there's a real issue here when it comes to doing covert action. Because this, the agencies, when they do covert action, there's committees, there's presidential findings, there's all these things. But when the military is doing this, they don't have the same kind of oversight as this, the intelligence agencies do. Yeah, it's it's ironic. Um, people usually assume, and you see this coming out in the debate about whether. Uh, responsibility for all uh, drone strikes should be shifted to the Pentagon away from the CIA, for instance. There's a real, um, there's a misconception, I think, that uh, something lodged in the intelligence community is going to be secret and unaccountable, whereas you'll have more oversight and accountability when it's lodged in the military. And that's not always the case, as, as you suggest, um, because there are some pretty big legal loopholes uh, you can drive a lot of drones through. Um, the the military, when it's engaged in what it can plausibly call traditional military operations, doesn't necessarily need to report to its oversight committees on individual strikes, for instance, um, whereas the CIA does under current legislation. 
Um, so at the moment, sometimes, you know, shifting things from one agent to the other not only doesn't solve the problem of accountability, if that's what we're worried about, but, but can actually make it worse. Um, you know, that, that being said, I, I do think, and, and, and a central argument of the book um, ultimately is we need to stop being so fixated on these artificial categories we've created um, military, civilian, war, peace, intelligence, military, and instead really focus on what are we trying to accomplish with, with what kinds of safeguards? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, God didn't say only the intelligence community can do this and only the military can do that and only the State Department can do that. You know, we created these, these sets of rules and these various walls between things. And we created them for, for, for a reason, right? We created them because we thought this was going to be most effective. We created them because we thought this was the right balance of accountability versus secrecy. And if they're not doing, if they're not accomplishing what we want them to, then we can change them. So from my perspective, I don't really care on some level who does what. I think we need to figure out what does the United States need to have done. And then we need to figure out which agency is best placed in terms of capabilities and so on to actually do it. And we need to figure out whoever is doing whatever it is, how do we make sure that it does have meaningful democratic oversight? How do we make sure that there is meaningful transparency and accountability? How do we make sure that this is done well and done responsibly? And that set of questions should drive what we do, not the sort of artificial, well, you can't do that because you're in the wrong agency and so forth. I want to take a moment now to tell you a little about our new sponsor, Harry's. For far too long, you've either paid too much for a comfortable shave or you settled for low-priced but low-quality razor. Harry's offers something you've never had before, a great shave at a fair price. Harry's makes its own high-quality razors, cuts out the middleman, and ships them directly to you for half the price of the leading brand. Good shave, good price. It's simple. Get the best of both with Harry's. Now, I hate shaving, and I try to get away with doing it as little as possible. Perhaps it's rebelling for years of having to shave every day in the Army. It's possible it's just as much a reaction either having to buy expensive razors that don't last for very long or buying cheap razors that shred my face. With Harry's, I don't have to sacrifice my bank account or my face. Harry's makes just one razor with all you need for a close, comfortable shave. Five German-crafted blades, a flex hinge, and a lubricating strip. Quality guaranteed. Full refund if you're not happy. With factory direct prices, Harry cuts out the middleman, no upcharges, and half the price of the leading brand. They have an incredible user-friendly website, and Harry's starter set called the Truman is a great option for new customers and an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus, there's a special offer for SpyCast listeners. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code SPYCAST. Go to harrys.com right now and look for the Truman set. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code SPYCAST at checkout to get $5 off and help support the show. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. Well, you're really, it's a fantastic idea fighting against 150 years of crazy bureaucracy about mission creep and taking, uh, taking roles from other people. And it reminds me, one of the things I did want to talk to you about, uh, as I said in your bio, when you were at the Department of Defense, you led a major overhaul of the DOD strategic communication information operations efforts. And for the definition of this varies depending on who you're talking to. Uh, for some, it's as benign as making the United States look good around the world. Others, it's 
psyops is propaganda it's it's you know things that are a little more devious uh can you talk through your role here and the reason i'm bringing this up now is talking about this bureaucratic pushback because this is something the state department didn't particularly like that you were doing and something the cia because the type psyops the propaganda side didn't like uh how much uh bureaucratic um craziness did you run into I'm when you're still doing having it? like post-traumatic <laughs> stress symptoms from that i was yeah i was not uh I mean, all sorts of not so great stuff happened under the rubric of strategic communication at the Pentagon, particularly uh, uh, during the first years after the 9-11 attacks. And the Bush administration got up to some pretty crazy stuff, um, some of which it had to sort of quickly repudiate uh, when it got leaked to the press and so on. And it was embarrassing, like planting fake news stories with foreign press outlets and stuff that just, you know, they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have been doing it. it was, dumb, um, dumb and ineffective, among other things. Um, um, but, but that being said, you know, to, in the broadest sense, strategic communication means literally communicating strategically, which, you know, and, and there's never, everybody ought to be doing that all the time. That's just to say, thinking hard about how will people perceive what we're doing and saying? What message will it send to which audiences? Is it the message we're trying to send, or are we accidentally sending a message that's the opposite of what we're trying to send? And in that sense, you know, strategic communication, there's nothing nefarious about it. Everybody does it all the time. Some people do it well, some people do it badly. You know, the U.S. should, should be trying to think about things like, okay, if we're trying to reassure the polls that our changes to uh, uh, missile defense policy um, are not going to be bad for them, um, that announcing that we're taking uh, missile defenses out of Poland should not coincide with the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Poland. You know, <laughs> it's just, duh, right? right. But so, so there's nothing nefarious about that. Um, I do think that, you know, in other ways, though, it did get into this question of sort of mission creep. Um, the Defense Department over the years, um, as you mentioned, concerts earlier, I remember there was a peace concert that DOD was funding. I uh, in, in North Africa, I can't even remember which country it was, that the State Department was particularly incensed about. And they were saying, why, in God's name, is the military, you know, funding and producing peace concerts? You guys don't even know what you're doing, A, and B, this is our job. And, and for there, you know, there too, there was a lot of friction. And, and I, I absolutely understand from the perspective of, of the State Department it's maddening to see your own budget stagnate or be cut, making it impossible for you to do the things that you want to do or do them well. And then meanwhile, here are these sort of 800-pound gorilla bumbling around. Right. If it's a war concert, that's one right, thing. Exactly. But a peace concert. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just tearing your hair out at this kind of inept effort. And, but, but that said, I mean, I think where the discussion tended to kind of bog down was in the wrong place, which was over this, you know, well, you shouldn't do that, we should do this, as opposed to... The, again, that, that more central question of does it help the United States to do this? Maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe the peace concert is just stupid no matter who does it. Maybe it's useful. I don't know. Um, but, you know, if we need to do it, who can do it? How do we make sure that whoever can do it does it well? And how do we, how do we make sure that they have the resources to do that and kind of get away from this very artificial... Does this need to be at cabinet level? I mean, because you're not going to get the agency, and I mean the capital A agency, CIA, working with DOD, working with state, you know, working with these other organizations, unless they're being directed from the very top. Is this something that needs to be directed from the White House, run by cabinet officials? Yeah. Or is that too top down? No, I think it does have to be 
to some extent top down because these are hierarchical agencies and and uh you know, if you don't have strong leadership from the very, very top, it doesn't happen. Even when you do have leadership, it's really hard to make it work. Um, but I think that we saw some good starts, you know, when, when for instance, Secretary of Defense uh, Bob Gates and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were literally kind of touring together saying, you know, we need to build up civilian capabilities and so on. But but I do think that we have not yet had a president, including President Obama, who was really willing to put any political capital into that. And I, you know, I understand he had other priorities trying to get a health care bill passed and this and that, and those are important too. But, but it would take a president and cabinet level uh, officials willing to do really painstaking work on Capitol Hill with members of Congress, you know, putting a lot of time into it it would be hard but you without that without that leadership both in terms of relationships with congress and in terms of the message sent down through the departments and agencies i think that you will only see very very limited change it's almost like they need an old-fashioned summit meeting like in Reykjavik in 86 (laughs) where like dod and state can actually that that reminds me of a joke that uh i was told when i was at the defense department and this is a cold war era joke um but the, and the joke was about the rival between the Defense Department and the State Department, and it was, um, you know, somebody trying to define the difference between the terms enemy and adversary, and they said to illustrate the dis- difference between the words enemy and adversary, the Soviet Union is our adversary, the State Department is our <laughs> enemy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, in all seriousness, you don't tend to see John Kerry, Ash Carter, John Brennan, and Clapper hanging out having conversations. Maybe they are. Maybe we're just not seeing it. Um, all off playing golf together secretly somewhere. Well, whatever. Ha- a lot of good stuff happens on the golf course of, in Washington. But, uh. you know, they're, they're, they're just not having – it doesn't seem like they're having these, these conversations at the level that needs to happen. Um, and everyone seems to want to kind of protect their fiefdom. Yeah. And that's yeah. Washington for you. But. It will be really interesting. I mean, I mean, we have two presidential candidates, both of whom in different ways, if, if elected, could really shake that up, though. You know, I mean, Donald Trump – Donald Trump, who knows what happens if he's elected, but clearly he's, he's demonstrated already that he is, for better or for worse, and no respecter of boundaries and no respecter of traditions – Hillary Clinton, who is very much a respecter of traditions, um, however, would come at this having had the experience of being at the State Department. We haven't, it's been a very, very long time since we had a secretary of, former secretary of state in the White House. And I think that that would give her a very different perspective than past presidents, you know, coming out of the executive branch and having really lived firsthand some of these coordination difficulties uh, between the civilian side and the military side. So, so you know, and it, either way, I think we're going to get something different. Exactly what that right. looks like, I have no idea. There might be a chance I'm watching what happens from Canada. Um, right. <laughs> so let me, let me finish, this, finish this fantastic interview off by talking to you about an interesting case that you made for potentially having done less in Iraq and Afghanistan. And... and Correct me if I'm completely missing your point, but in the the book, you argue that maybe we should have left Iraq and Afghanistan directly after we had accomplished what we consider the traditional military mission. In Afghanistan, that would be defeating the Taliban, in Iraq, that would be kicking out Saddam Hussein, and then letting NGOs, special forces, like the Ba'athists go back, like actually people who knew how to run Iraq back into power. You argue, and others people have as well, but you make a really compelling argument 
for ignoring the democratization argument, for uh, ignoring the the nation building. And you say there'd be less violence and less bloodshed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I don't know if I would say I want to ignore the democratization mm. piece, but just that... Let it happen our, over time. More well, than... our, that our, our, our reach so greatly exceeds our grasp um, that sometimes, often, we end up doing a lot more harm than good. And, you know, I think that when the U.S. is involved in mucking around in the affairs of other states and other populations, once the purely defensive piece ends, you know, responding to 9-11 attacks by preventing al-Qaeda from carrying out similar catastrophic attacks or whatever, you know, once that that critical defensive piece ends, we ought to be guided by the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath for physicians is sort of first do no harm. Um, and we should not be, when we don't know what we're doing, I mean, this is really just an argument that we usually don't know what we're doing and that our, our ability, our national ability to comprehend uh, other cultures and nationalist sentiment and other languages and other political systems is usually much, much less than we think it is. Our staying power is usually much, much less than we imagine it will be at the beginning and the financial and other resources we're willing to commit always turn out to be much, much less than we promise. And if you, if you just accept that from the get-go, if you say, whatever we may want, whatever we may think, whatever the idealistic people right now may wish to do, we, we probably won't do it. We won't be able to do it. That, that would lead you to ask a really different set of questions, whether you're in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or any other post-conflict setting, you know, even you know, talk about places like Haiti or the Balkans, and lead you to say, instead of saying, you know, how can we promote a kind of wholesale reinvention of this society and its government institutions, it would lead you instead to say, what, in what ways, if, if we assume that anything we do will be over in six months, you know, what could we do now that in six months would unequivocally leave people better off? Um, and that's a much more modest kind of question, and it, and it, I think, suggests a much more hands-off, a much more, you know, it, and it has nothing to do with, it's not so much backing away from the values of democracy or protecting human rights. It's just sort of acknowledging reality, you know, that, that it's, we can say all we want, you know, oh, we really want there to be human rights and, you know, non-sectarian government in, in Iraq. But if we can't do it and what we're likely to do makes things worse, then that's just garbage and we better, we're better leaving. You know, that, and we need to find ways to talk about our values without actually making things worse. Well, I think the key thing that you said is that we don't know what we're doing, but we don't know that we don't know what we're doing. And I think that's... I know that we don't. I know yeah, that I don't know what we're doing. No, I'm saying that. I think that's that, you know, we, we yeah. thought we knew what we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. We thought we had but all the was, answers. And that was just arrogance. Right. That was just arrogance. And I think that, that the solution may be people kind of sucking it up and saying, you know, unless we're going to war across the Fulda Gap in Europe... Uh, we don't know what the hell we're doing. Like this is this is you know unprecedented. Whatever war is next, it's not going to look like any war that's come before. Yeah, and that's yeah. not an argument for isolationism at all. It's it's if anything, it's actually an argument for engagement. You know, it's an argument for building relationships in peacetime as in wartime. It's an argument for making sure that we do have presence, military presence, and civilian presence in societies all around the world. You know, it's it's an argument for being engaged, but in a way that is sort of humbly aware of the fact that 
you know, change doesn't happen overnight or enduring change rarely happens overnight and that everything we think we know is probably 5% of what there is to know. Um, and that, that doesn't mean we can't be helpful, but it definitely means we should be a lot more humble. We'd like to thank our two great sponsors, Mack Weldon and Harry's. Remember, you can get great discounts from both of these companies using the promo code SPYCAST. 20% off at MacWeldon.com and $5 off at Harry's.com. That's 20% off at MacWeldon.com and $5 off at Harry's.com using the promo code SPYCAST. Rosa Brooks is a professor of law at Georgetown University. She is the author of the brand new book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Thank you, Rose, for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. Thanks so much, Vince. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-SPYCAST. Talk to you next week.